Democracy in Crisis, and I am Baynard Woods, and I'm here today with my co-host and longtime friend and co-founder of this podcast, Mark Steiner. Good to see you, man. How you doing? Doing good. How about you? Doing good. Now we got this new weekly show here at The Real News on top of our podcast at the Center for Emerging Media, so things are good. I'm yeah. having fun. Yeah, yeah. Check out. Uh, Mark's got some great interviews over the last couple of weeks. Bill Ayers, uh, Chelsea Manning, so check it out on, on The Real News. Another shameless plug before you start talking about 420 and 420. Oh, is that what we're talking about? That 420 comes up and 420, to, okay. Right. 40 or whatever. But what? anyway, <clears throat> it's a shameless plug. But folks, go to alabamachronicles.com. Oh, yeah. This is alabamachronicles.com. It's my first film. It's a really good film uh, with Nelson Malden, who is Martin Luther King's barber. And I want to say, it really is like a, a, for someone who's generally associated with sound, um, you know, being a, a, old head radio guy like you are it's <laughs> beautiful it's a just it's a beautiful a visually beautiful Thanks. document but also it's really rich with sound and and i i love the way that it isn't just him his face talking when he's talking but it's him walking or it, it's put together and the light is just gorgeous and it's you, really real, amazing not to dwell on this but that that i have to since you raised that i have to give credit to hans charles who was the cinematographer on Eva DuVernier's 13th that was nominated for Academy Award. He was our cinematographer. This was his idea. He said, let's not shoot people interviewing straight ahead on like I'm talking to you and with your face. Let's audio record them like you do for radio, and we will shoot scenes all around and create it more like a music video feel so you can get more intimate with... So I said, let's try it. I've never done it before. And I, I you know, A, I fell in love with that technique, and B... Just the collaborative, the creative collaborative that exists in film is really an exciting kind of milieu to be in. And the, I mean, the the story, Malden's story is just like, oh, oh God, it's so yeah. moving and, and coming out right at the 50th anniversary of, of, it's a really good project. Y'all should go check it out. Yeah. People drop some money to help fund. There's one's going to be coming out every month right. for the next nine months. Is that the... Between the remembrance of King's assassination to the celebration of his 90th birthday... Uh, January fifteenth, so one a month. Wow, it's it's really From it, death it, to birth. <laughs> great work on that, sir. Thanks, very thanks. very nice job. Uh, so yeah, it's four twenty, and uh, you know that has a variety of different sort of connotations in our right. our world right now, and and one of them is is weed. And last year we we with democracy in crisis, we produced a ton. Of journalism about weed, I, I talked right. to chemists about terpenes, and I, I uh, talked to all kinds of different medical people and and growers about what was happening with and sent it out to a and bunch. You did of a special purpose. edition of the city paper that you put together. Yeah, year. for years we started right. doing that. We decided we were going here in Baltimore when they decriminalized. We just quit. Maybe it had, decriminalization hadn't even happened yet, but we quit uh, treating it as illegal. We just decided we were going to treat it as a as something that's legal, and we would review it just like we would IPAs or some kind of thing like right. that. And as you should. And the the, the world has, has moved us in that direction a lot. And so, I mean, you were you were just talking about the first time that you ever smoked up uh, <laughs> back in like 1963, and the last time you smoked up being just moments ago. So take us from one to the other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. All right, here we go. So what happened? 1963. Reefer wasn't very common back then. People didn't smoke it much in Baltimore. 
but I was dating this girl for that summer, spring, who had moved down to live with her aunt. She was from Harlem. She's one of the most beautiful women I ever met as a 17-year-old. I was just, as soon as I saw her, I was, oh, mm, damn. <laughs> we were at Idol for a while. She was great. And so one day we were walking around the reservoir in Liberty Heights, and she pulls out a joint. And she goes, have you ever smoked reefer before? Uh, I said, oh, yeah, sure, you know, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Never did, of course. I mean, we were drinking Thunderbird and, <laughs> and hanging on the corner. But um, Give me a sense. What did you look like at that time in 1963? <laughs> what did I look like? Yeah, I mean, like ducktail haircut or something, no, like greaser kind of guy. Like, what was your what was your? No, was I, your was, I was wearing my pork pie hats and um, or my fedoras whatever, with pen. I had... Uh, Always clean, shoes shined. Um, my uh, pleated 22-inch cuff gabardines and pants. Usually like Italian shirts, coming in a knit shirt or something. Toothpick, I sent one of them out. Oh, looking fly. Pell-mell yeah. out of my other <laughs> That was me back then. So the, the, this sort of a, a diner kind of. the, the well, well, it was diner was white, so my world wasn't. So Right, right. So the, um, yeah, so it was, it was a little bit different. And it was, uh, you know, just one of the corner guys playing pool, sitting in the corner, hanging out, doing what we did every day. Um, All right, so now you're, you're walking around the... Walking around. So we met, we met at a party, actually, and, 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 uh, and, and actually in her basement. So anyway, we, we uh, were walking around, and she goes, you ever smoke? Oh, yeah, I'd never done it before. So she, she took a toke, she lit it, and uh, she passed it over to me, and I watched what she did because I never seen it before. I didn't know what you did. I'm looking at her, going, making sure I knew what she was doing. And watched her. Did you know what it was? I knew what it was because I, you know, had a red beatnik stuff. I knew who was gone. I knew what it was, but I never did it, and it wasn't around, you know. So um, I remember I got so high. I got so high. I literally fell to my knees and grabbed, my, put my arms around her because I didn't know where I was. <laughs> it's just, but from then on, so I've had a love of with Reefer since I was 17. And uh, just lucky that, you know, after she left and I was had to leave the state, um, I ended up in a place where there was lots of people who did it who were my age, and I went, so I just never stopped, so... So, so I want to go back to the the moment of of that that early sort of moment when you're you're smoking with her. Um, I mean, was it was it something that was because it was uncommon? Was it something that police were strictly enforcing uh, here, or were police not even really? Was it not on no, their radar it, at it the time? That never. It was on the radar at all. I mean, you knew some cats downtown the East Side that smoked reefer, but you know, but they were older usually. Um, jazz guys are the people downtown, but, but no, it wasn't a thing at all. Right. I mean, it became a thing because, <clears throat> I mean, like everything else in America that is born of non-white worlds and comes to the white world, uh, if you were hip and cool, you had to start smoking marijuana. Uh, but then when it became, when it became, well, we, there's a little history before that, but I mean, obviously, but when you came to the 60s and it became associated with not just rebellion, but revolution and counterculture. And then it, then they were just busting people right and left all yeah. the time. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's interesting, as you say, as it comes into uh, 
white culture from other cultures because I, I reread this summer the the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Oh yeah. And yeah. by Tom Wolf about the merry pranksters and stuff and this was uh 63 or 64 when they're start, they're starting to take acid and and um you know it's 6 years or 7 years after on the road came out and stuff. And I'm amazed, I was amazed at how racist not just the book in in Wolf like talking about spades or whatever in in right. But in the way that the idea behind what the Merry Pranksters were doing in part was that it was the first um, white subculture. That it was the, or, or not the first white subculture, but the first white subculture that wasn't white people be to, trying to be in Mailer's term like white Negroes. It was the first uh, nascently white subculture that with acid that they thought was not like the beats where they were trying to hang out with Charlie oh, Parker see, and I stuff. Right, right, right. But, and then you see that with the Beatles at the same time. It becomes chamber music. It takes all of the sort of hip moving or anything that, that comes from black music and becomes chamber music in around, you know, as that stuff catches on too with, with um, by 68 or whatever. And so it's a weird, a weird moment that, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just a, a tangent because that gets into acid rather than reefer. But um, yeah, four twenty is reefer, not acid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, but I was astounded at the right. the just like how much those guys, the Merry Pranksters, were really way more like the alt right than they are anything on the left right now. That's interesting. I never thought about that. But there's always been an element of that there. I mean, because a lot of a lot of people from that era who were white liked the Merry Pranksters. They were pretty elitist and separate and thought of themselves as stars as well, you know, and kind of, um, they were, to me, they were almost the beginning of the commercialization of what counterculture was. Yeah, and the whitening of the, yeah, that's what commercialization means is making it white for the, the, so now, I mean, let's jump forward to when I'm 17, which is, is uh, 1980. Eight and eighty-seven, eighty-eight, and so I'm I'm been smoking weed in South Carolina for a little while. Have long hair and shit. I'm really influenced by that shit y'all were doing in your gener- generation, yeah. sort of hippie kid. And get pulled over by the cops. Uh, I left. I was already flunking chemistry and was reading actually that Mary Prankster stuff then that Tom Wolf book at the same. Time and which is weird to come back to it now. But so I was, I left school. All the people at my school were assholes. Um, the town. This is where Bob Jones University is. It's a really small town. I mean, now it's gotten bigger, but it. it uh, <clears throat> there were like a dozen schools in it, and so you could live a mile from someone and go to a different school. Hmm. Um, for what it's worth, it's what the new schools program here in Baltimore. Uh, um, uh, the facilities maintenance is is based on Greenville's in, in recent years. But so I get pulled over as I'm driving and I'm legally not allowed to be in school because I'd already flunked this class and didn't have to take the exam. And but they pull me over into the parking lot as I'm bringing some other dude that I'd gotten a bag back back to school. And everyone, because it was exams, is having lunch outside. And <laughs> four cop cars pull up behind me. They immediately, like, yank us out of the car. They find beer in the back, which was the other dude's beer, and they put it in the car. And the other guy's like, you you drink beer, bae? Oh, my God. And we're, like, blaming everything on me. So they make me do sobriety tests. You know, I'm standing out there touching my nose, standing on one leg, and everybody's clapping. 
as I'm doing it. Like the whole school's watching this. And then, then they pull the bag out of my pocket. They find the weed in my pocket. And they, the guys are like, oh, you do drugs? And they handcuff me. And they get on the megaphone. And to the whole school, they say, everyone, look at your friend. Look at your peer and see what drugs will do to you. And they push me in the back of the cop car. And that was the first of four times over the next two years that I got arrested in that town for having weed. And you never went to jail, jail? Never went to jail, jail. I went to jail, but I never did but, time. Yeah, like, you did time is what I'm trying Being to a white kid there. I did have to go to state drug counseling uh, quite extensively for a long time. State ordered drug counseling. It didn't counseling. do any good, did it? <laughs> Amazingly, it did. He's dead now, so I can say no, I mean, this. I did, the counseling didn't do much for you. Well, what I'm saying is it did, and I'll tell you how, and I can tell the story because he's dead. Uh, after a while, the counselor, yeah, he, at one point he almost sent me away to, to, he told me this later, he almost sent me to rehab because he got $50 for every person he sent, and that was what a quarter bag cost at the time. <laughs> but so at one point, me and this kid who had been in there for a long time go to him, and we're like, because he let it out early, and that kid had a DUI and, and couldn't, I mean, this group counseling they send you to, you just meet all the other fuck-ups, you know? <laughs> so we go to him, and, and he's a dude of, of your generation, and... Uh, he had been a conscientious objector during the war, but they put him as a Red Cross guy um, and sent him over there to get shot at with a target on his head, and and he was kind of fucked up. And, and so we're like, hey, man. And he was always talking about weed and acid and shit. We're like, you don't have a joint, do you? He said to you? No, we asked him, our counselor. Oh, yeah, we asked him. And the motherfucker gave it to us. <laughs> and so then we started this long period of... Like go, he made me an assistant counselor, and we would go drive around afterwards and drink like a case of beer. He'd be making me drive and smoking reefer, driving all through this like town that I was like getting pulled over all the time in. I mean, this guy could have been really put under the jail. It was a uh, really he could have for all kinds of charges. My boy, God, I mean, it it really would you have were been seventeen. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. and, and then into 18, but he was my state-appointed drug counselor. It, it just would have been a, a disaster, but it did work because his whole thing was, it was the just say no era, so this is where we are at that point. It's just, and he's, when asked if you do drugs, and we would all say, just say no. He's like, y'all are all in here because you're fucking stupid. You don't have to. And while his methods were radical and extreme and insane, and I wouldn't recommend them to anyone, and I certainly wouldn't do them if I were in, had the charge of a younger person, I think they did work for me, and I appreciate that dude. <laughs> so I'm 420. Here's to you, Jay. 420, and times have changed. Look at it. Times have changed drastically. I mean, just amazing. You drive 45 miles down the road from Baltimore, where we're broadcasting from. Yeah, it's legal it's in legal. D.C. You can grow there. You can't buy, but you can go and buy stickers or something—a forty-dollar sticker—and get your weed or whatever kind of stuff you want with it. Here in Baltimore, we have the medical facilities now and some of the places that we have stuff in the papers like in colorado uh you know <laughs> you just wide open stores so so i'm curious what you think before we talk about the other 420 real fast because i think the connections are weird ways so so what do you think now that marijuana is and the use of marijuana is that it's now going to be very mainstream legal people can do what they want buy it when it's always been associated with the outside and people who saw themselves as outsiders. I know lots of people in corporate America who smoke, and I mean, I, I know all that. That's, that's what I'm saying. But I'm, but I'm saying that the, the, even for them, 
it's the one, th- one something that they do that's kind of outlaw-ish, right? And now, yeah, the big orange boner, John Boehner, is uh, joined the board of a weed company this week. So, the so, former Speaker so what of the that, House. So what does that mean? So, so because it was illegal and because it was associated with other things, um, it became a symbol of resistance in some ways, even though I'm not saying it's real resistant, but it became a symbol for many people. Now it's just going to be part of life. It's going to be like a beer. Yeah, I mean... It, you know, it's, 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 the cultural aspects of it are going to change drastically. They will not be the same. Right, because you had a certain quality of a relationship with someone. Like the first time when you would be going back home for Thanksgiving and realize that someone else in your family was ahead and you didn't know it and they right. didn't know that and yet you walk out back and burn one together like your relationship's suddenly a different relationship in those days then and i think maybe that that and you you really had to trust people because you get fucking thrown in jail over right. this stuff no, exactly and so it created this the standing in the circle and passing the joint around which you don't have to do anymore either because it's it's cheaper and easier to like you can, of course, but like that created this communal thing where it's also right. like we're we're in this secret. It did make you be a subculture of being. You're, and so the subculture is going to be gone. Yeah, or at least be mainstreamed. Uh, the subculture will not be the recreational aspect. Part of the recreational aspect of that subculture will no longer have to will be no longer just be reefer because it's going to be standard. Everybody's going to be doing it. It's going to be doing it out in the open. There'll be places in the next five, ten years people can just sit around like a bar and have a joint and a cup of coffee or beer or whatever. You know, so that's that's different. I mean, one of the ways it'll still be a subculture is, is in a way, everything else has gone in that way. So there's the subcultures now of, like, hopheads in the sense of, like, really, like, IPA. Uh, you know, people, like, who are, are know everything about the kind of hops that they well, want in their beer. beer. Can, I'm a hophead. Yep. Or I, fancy coffee. And, and so you could you could see that there are sub, every coffee shop has its sort of cub, yeah. subculture. Every bar. So maybe it goes that way a little bit more where you have, uh, you know, and you still had, even in that period of those kind of people, you still had the Bukowskis and William Burroughs, people who were romanticizing alcohol. And even though alcohol was legal, winos are a subculture. Oh, no question about that. And so there's a way in which, yeah, maybe there's something about it that, because, yeah, the real question, and in all my weed reviews lately, Brandon said, like, his have all become just dick jokes and stuff, and mine have all become these phenomenological explorations of trying to figure out what it is to be high. What does that mean? And... Maybe that there really is this part that it becomes a subculture a little bit more like yoga or something where you have this shared experience that other people maybe just don't get that shared experience a little bit and that kind of riff and that kind of uh, thing that it does to your thinking a little bit. Yeah. Um, Well, maybe the new rebel culture will be not doing anything. (laughs) There's also the people who are doing who are doing like the dabs and stuff. So you, right. you know, you get the oils that, that, and you, you smoke it off of a little nail and stuff. And I think that's an attempt to recreate a subculture is, is you have this, this thing that it, it makes your soft drugs feel hard. <laughs> if you want, if you need that shit. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, mean, I don't and, need that shit. Um, so speaking of subcultures, Let's talk about a subculture that also has a holiday whose culture is not so sub, but is becoming very dominant across the globe. And that's fascism. 
and the fascist cultures, because this is also the birthday of Adolf Hitler, 420. Um, Hitler, who was a vegetarian <laughs> uh, and loved dogs. And so, and also loved killing off people that were not human to him and creating an undemocratic world that threatened the entire globe. So that's also on 420. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. I feel like we're in this dangerous moment. We've been talking about this a lot over the last years, but I've seen a lot of stories recently, uh, one in Truth Out this week, sort of about how Antifa has won. The anti-fascists have sort of beat the alt-right. And it's like, oh, Milo has disappeared, and Richard Spencer's been sort of deplatformed. The guy who's from here, the, the traditional list workers' party, Matthew Heimbach, uh, had the hilarious thing where he his organization was destroyed after he was uh, fucking the wife of his spokesperson, who was also the stepfather of his wife. And so... Yeah, and and it destroyed their whole party. And so there are a lot of... The anti-fascists have exposed these people, gotten them kicked off of Twitter or various platforms. Um, But Donald Trump is still the president. And Anton and Bannon and people are out of the White House, so there is some of that. We're going to an international war. So, they, you know, the, the Nazi faction within the Republicans are sort of against that. But I think it's to, to say that the... the Stories of their demise have been greatly over-exaggerated. Well, first of all, I think <clears throat> I think we have to think of, we have to have, we, have, we have to think of a new definition of what fascism means in the 21st century, because all right, all the people you name that that are not as significant as they were, uh, and lead up to Trump's election, the the fascists, the alt-right folks, um, I mean, they are unsophisticated in many ways. Backwards racists. The people you're talking about, the, the fascists I'm more worried about are not them because I don't think they'll take power. My fear are the people who I think really are the fascists in terms of how they want to dominate this country and the world. They're taking over. It's like, because, who do you mean? Or what do you mean? I mean all of the most... Well, all right. I mean all of the most conservative elements in the corporate world and the people they back, the overthrow of the left in Brazil, um, what's happening in elections in in Austria and other countries uh, where fascists are taking hold, Um, the Philippines. And I think that that, that there's a a gigantic social motion happening and it's driven by a very racist and right-wing element, huge element, uh, in the ruling class that also touches masses of white people around the globe and others as well. Um, I think that's the real danger that, that, that we're facing. And we and, and so it's, it's, it's... I keep saying that the only thing we, that, we, that we have that we can possibly think of to build to confront something like that is like a 21st century version of... 21st century version of the 20th century reality of united fronts the communist party used to do yeah i mean it's interesting that i mean bannon i think is the one out of the people that i mentioned that really speaks to what you're talking about a lot that cambridge analytica the great guardian piece 
about the the yeah. pink-haired guy who who had the algorithm or whatever that let him steal all the Facebook stuff. He was like, and he's gay, and and was like, Bannon was obsessed with intersectional feminism. That talking to Bannon was like talking to people in a gender studies program. Because he knew those were all of that, that intersectional feminism was all of the things that the white men that he was speaking to around the world. And he's been on his European tour lately, like, be proud if they call you racists or whatever. And, and, but he gets what you're talking about, I think, which is why he is sort of the, and I mean, the Mercer, he had, he blew it with, but he had the Mercer money. And he also, he and the Mercers were obsessed with, with gay people as well as being early adopters. And so that's why they were pushing, they were pushing Milo. That's why they were pushing. They're like, if, if gay people dig it, then like everyone will dig it. Um, a lot of the, lot of the leadership of the European fascist parties are gay. I mean, I think that even back to the actual Nazi party, even back to the actual Nazi party, right? And yeah. so, and I think that again speaks to like what I was saying about how. how how marijuana was always on the outside. So now that the battle for 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 gay and lesbian rights took place, it's now expanded in terms of what that scope means beyond GL. Um, that now it's, all, that it, it's being accepted by larger and larger parts of the population, especially, quote-unquote, secular parts of the population. And a lot of that secular part is very conservative and right-wing. And so... That's also a natural phenomenon. You're going to see that happen, and I think that's that. That's one of the same. It's the same thing at work when you see right wingers who really hate and despise black people vote for black candidates who are conservative. Right, and you also have now that you have gay marriage and all of that. Right, um, and and it is more accepted. You like the rich white men who happen to also be gay, Peter Thiel or whoever. Uh, are when it comes to heart, rich white men. Now they're not being discriminated against, and so yeah, they're going to easily have go towards that kind of fascist bent. Um, and I like that idea about the United Fronts. I mean, I, I've been thinking back in the the nineties. I I wrote an op ed for the Industrial Workers of the World paper uh, <laughs> about how the that capital has gone. Multinational. I mean, the problem with NAFTA and stuff is that that unlike in Europe, it it allows capital to move over borders, but not people. And so we have these this mass migration that that has we have no way to deal with. And but I feel like we need maybe even going back before the 20th century to the 19th century, we need a new international um, because really what we're we're also fighting is that around the world, capital has been given the ability to move freely with all of the trade agreements. And so we have the multinational corporations that aren't, but people and workers are confined to the borders with the exceptions of like within Europe and stuff, confined to the borders of their own place. And we can't create an international uh, resistance to, whereas fascism because of its corporate support is sort of this international movement right now. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that's, I think the moment we're in where it's, all, we're stuck, it's almost like being stuck between a rock and a hard place if you have a certain kind of political sensibility. A rock and a hard place or a rock? <laughs> a rock. Okay. A rock. It could be a rock as well, yeah. which is symbolic of a rock. Yes. Um, and, I, and I think that, that people who thought they were going to overthrow or stop capitalism, I think that's at this point in human history is almost absurd as a notion. Um. I don't see how it can happen. 
because this the power of it. So it's, that's why I'm saying these different sectors that actually have certain ideologies, the danger is, uh, as it, well, how do I start this? Here's a way to start this. So now we're all saying the FBI are the good guys. We're saying the FBI are the good guys because they're being attacked by this crazy fascist group that can't control the FBI. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for it. I think part, uh, but part of it had to do with whether the, my friends like it or not, and I've always thought this even when they were after us and pulled us in, um, was they have more integrity than other people in the government in many ways, whether you agree with them politically or not and what they've done. Because those things are... Anyway. So we're being forced to defend them because the really crazy racist right is attacking them and they have all these corporate interests around them. So in order to combat that, I think you have to make as broad alliances with lots of people to stop that madness from taking over the country and taking over the planet. Which puts us in a very different place than it was than it was 50 years ago. In a very different historical moment. But the similarity is, I mean, and I'm I'm COINTELPRO and all of that. I I we've been railing about the the left's sort of valoration of the FBI since Trump kind of came in, but I do think you're right in like David Grant's great book, The Killers of the Flower Moon, about those age Indian murders in Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the early 20th century, and it was the first FBI's really first case and the the you know, we had it with the Gun Trace Task Force here that Part of what they do is that when local law enforcement is utterly out of control and insane, having an and corrupt with whatever that you have someone from outside of that be able to come in. And that's the same thing that makes the Trump people and all of that hate it. So uh, but we are we're in this really dangerous, weird moment where. Whatever we do is is really fraud. Except smoking weed, we can do that without <laughs> being fraud anymore. I, I mean, it's it's a strange strange times, brother. So let's. Uh, it's really strange times. Uh, and I float between optimism and pessimism all the time. I just get like on the swing, depending on my mood, against what I'm doing, or. You're lucky because I like my swing is like between pessimism and and nihilism or something. So. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that. That's uh, as will be echoed in just a minute as we close out with our, our your hatred of my closing lines here. Uh, so we'll we'll have to first of all thank Stephen Frank for uh, Stephen doing, Frank doing the engineering for us here and making it sound good and bringing. We were out on the street right before this, and someone recognized Mark's voice just by <laughs> hearing him say like two words. And so you're lucky to get to hear that. On here, uh, shout out to also our number one fan, Terrence, who was just asking me where the hell you've been and why we haven't been doing this. So we're back and it's we're good back. To be back. We're back fun. for you, Terrence. Yeah. Thank you for the feedback. Anyone else who wants to give us feedback and all of the weeklies around the country where you're listening, uh, we appreciate it. Check out the real news and uh, much love and grim solidarity, y'all. And hopeful struggle ahead. <laughs>